You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. In the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful. Asalaamu Alaikum, peace be upon you, and welcome back to The Breakfast Show. You are joined today by myself, uh, Tukir Ahmed, and also Imam Asan Maksud here in the studio of Voice of Islam. And uh, we, we have a great packed show for our listeners today, as always. Um, so, as you know, the agenda of the show, the first 25 to half an hour of the show, we like to go through some of the news which is happening around the world and also with regards to the uh, news with regards to the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Um, and after that, we will be going into two of our main topics. Um, one of the first topics that we will be discussing uh, and this will be from 7.30 to 8.15. We will be discussing and looking at the question, in a world of science, does religion matter? And uh, in this uh, particular segment, we'll also be listening to John Carter, who is a retired teacher of French and German and humanist representative on the Merton SACRE. Uh, uh, so we'll be joining him. Um, we'll also be listening to uh, Abdul Haq Kompie, who is a member of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, um, who, and he is also a convert, um, and he is from the Netherlands. So we will also be listening to him. Uh, so that is the first segment from 7.30 to 8.15. And after that, from 8.15 to 9, we will be looking... At the question, is the education sector underfunded? Um, and for this uh, segment, we'll, be, we'll also have uh, our experts, Professor Terry uh, Boosie, who is the Education Program Coordinator for the Mansfield Campus of the Ohio, Uni- of Ohio State University. We'll be listening to him. We'll uh, also be listening to Zayan Khaled, who is a local coordinator of the Amdiya Muslim Youth Association. We'll also be listening to Zofishan Naim, who is a teacher at a secondary school in Great Britain. Uh, so that is the agenda for our listeners today. Um, but if any of our listeners do want to get in touch, if they have anything to say, uh, they can certainly do so by calling us on 0286877878. Or for more information to listen to any of our programs, um, you can go on our website on www.voiceofislam.co.uk. Uh, so do check that out. And also, uh, do also benefit from our Twitter handle, Voice of Islam UK. If there is any tweets or any important thing, any important tweet you want to share, uh, we can also read that out towards uh, the end of the show. Uh, so yeah, that's the agenda for today. Um, and uh, I'll start this segment off with the weather. So today, um, the forecast will be uh, this from BBC Weather. Uh, it will be very windy across the north and east with gales in the morning and bright spells and blustery showers in the north. And these easing by the afternoon and cloudy and drier in the south and tonight uh, further outbreaks of rain towards the north and these will be heavy at times and wintry over the scottish hills scattered showers in the far north and largely cloudy and dry across the south so that is the weather forecast Uh, do take care when you are going outside make sure you are covered you do have a jacket uh it's i i still say we're still not out of winter yet so uh you know do do take care um 
So we'll we'll start off with some of the news with regards to the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Um, so without further ado, I wanted to hand the mic to Imam Asan Maksud uh, to please uh, whiz us through some of the news which is happening with regards to the community. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Uh, good morning to everyone. I hope all the listeners are doing well. So I've got a few news reports from around the world of the Ahmadiyya community. Uh, starting of course with the latest virtual meeting with His Holiness, Hazrat Mirza Masood Ahmad, may Allah be his helper. So last Sunday, uh, 12 Atfal and 71 Khudam, which are the male members of the community under the age of 40 of Finland, met His Holiness virtually. During the meeting, His Holiness gave very comprehensive and thorough answers to questions asked by members of the community. And here I would like to mention a couple of very interesting questions asked by some members. One member stated that uh, he had firm faith that the Khalifa of the time is the closest person to Allah, to God in this day and age. He then asked His Holiness how Allah guides the Khalifa. His Holiness explained that uh, when he prays to Allah, Allah responds by placing satisfaction in his heart. His Holiness added that sometimes he is granted consolation and comfort through a dream or his heart is, as, is comforted. If Allah so desires, His Holiness said, he can speak too. So this is what we believe that our leader the leader of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community has been appointed a a caliph, a successor by God himself and he is then of course also the, the closest person to God in this day and age. And this is why members of the community write letters for prayers to His Holiness very regularly about all kind of difficulties or problems they are facing. And all of the members including us to here have witnessed how God Almighty answers the prayers of His Holiness and how through His prayers our problems are solved and we get satisfaction and comfort. Now coming back to the virtual meeting with His Holiness, um, one member stated to His Holiness that it can be difficult to maintain focus and consistency on a given task and he asked how one can overcome this challenge. His Holiness responded briefly uh, by saying, by removing your laziness. His Holiness explained that to maintain consistency in anything, one must be determined and have the right intentions. His Holiness further em emphasized the importance of hard work and prayer to God as key factors in achieving success. Uh, during this meeting, various other questions were asked. A detailed report in English can be read at alhakam.com and highlights, of course, will also be available in the MTA program this week with Huzur. Now, moving on to other news reports from, uh, from the community around the world. The community in Germany, which uh, has one of the largest members of our community in the Western countries, is celebrating its centenary as it has been 100 years since the community was established in Germany in 1923. So in this regard, uh, they are organizing different events 
and one such national event was held last month in Bethesda, Frankfurt, which is the headquarter of the community in Germany. During this event, documentaries documentaries were shown and uh, presentations were given about the history of the Ahmadiyya community in Germany, and this was attended by members all over the country virtually as well. Moving to Ivory Coast, uh, they have managed to create a studio for MTA International and this was opened and started on the 1st of February. And as our listeners are aware, uh, MTA International is a globally broadcasting uh, non-profit satellite television network of the Ahmadiyya community and this was established and launched in 1992 by the fourth caliph of the community, Hazrat Mirza Tahir Ahmed, may Allah have mercy on him. And it is the world's first Islamic TV channel to broadcast globally. And after its humble beginnings, where it only had a small studio in Mahmood Hall uh, in the London Mosque, by the grace of Allah, now it has eight TV channels broadcasting 24 hours a day in all continents of worldwide. And now, as I've mentioned, uh, African countries are also starting their own MTA studios, the latest example being Ivory Coast. Moving to New Zealand, the community there held its Jalsa Salana, the annual convention, on the 20th and 21st of January uh, at the Elfriston College located in Auckland. The two-day convention was attended by hundreds of Ahmadis in New Zealand and uh, this annual convention, which is held in every country by the community, serves as a forum to learn about various religious and contemporary topics. And the theme at this year's convention in New Zealand was religion and societal peace. Uh, so these are only a few latest news reports of the community I have today. Thank you for that. Um, one other particular um important event within the Yamdi Muslim community around the 20th of February is um, Yom Muslimat, uh, Muslimat Day in particular. And uh, the, the, the background, a, a very brief background to this is that the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, the founder of the Yamdi Muslim community, um, when he was being attacked from all four sides um, at that time when he claimed to be the promised Messiah, uh, at that time, uh, he prayed to God Almighty uh, that, uh, you know, may God Almighty uh, protect Islam or, you know, ha, you know ha, that Allah, that God Almighty may give him a way to, you know, show the beautiful teachings of Islam to the world. And it is even narrated that the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, he had traveled to a small town called Husharpur in India at that time from Qadian. And there he had uh, prayed for 40 days and the this was actually uh, prayers which were very much segregated and just he secluded himself in prayers for 40 days. And it was after these 40 days of prayings that he had announced to the world um, and he had even written an uh, um, announcement and it's called the Green Announcement. Um, and in this he... He said that God Almighty had uh, 
had told the promised Messiah, peace be on him, that he prophesied that he will have a son um, and this son will have 52 qualities. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and there's a whole list of all of these qualities. And we see that those were fulfilled in Hazrat Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmood Ahmad. May God Almighty be pleased with him. Um, so this is one also particular event which is um, which is celebrated within the Ahmadiyya Muslim community as well. Um, now moving on to news uh, with regards to around the world. One particular news item which I wanted to discuss was the storm Oro, which hits the uh, with damaging 18 miles per hour winds. So the news reads that the first named storm of the season, Storm Otto, um, is battering parts of Scotland and in England. And the Met Office said that winds uh, would reach speeds of 60 to 70 miles per hour, as high as 80 miles per hour as expo- on exposed coast in northern Scotland. And a yellow warning has been issued uh, from, 3, from 3 to 3 a.m. to 3 uh, PM from for Scotland for almost all Scotland another for uh, from five in the morning to two for the borders and northern East England and potential impacts include large waves on North Sea coast as well as a chance of some damage to buildings and ferry, ferry operator Calmac he has warned customers of disruption to services between Scotland's Scotland's uh, west coast mainland and islands and network rail scotland said that speed restrictions would be imposed on some routes and electric company sseen has said that the worst of the weather was expected to hit the caithness uh, orkney and the western isles and more than 130,000 uh, customers on its priority services services register have been contacted with storm advice and the mountain weather information service described it as a powerful atlantic storm warning that the uplands area from scotland to the to the penance could see gust of speed of about 200 miles per hour so that is that is one of the news um that's one of the news and uh, you know our thoughts and prayers Go out to uh, go out to um, you know people that have been affected by this. Um, so if anyone if anyone does want to get in touch with us, remember you can call us on zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight, or you can tweet to us at Voice of Islam UK. Now another particular news uh, which uh, which is in the news is uh, the Ohio Tyne Ruse chemical train uh, detrimental as our uh, chamble. So for for the East Palestine resident John and Lisa Hammer, life as they knew it came to a screeching flaming halt uh, on the 3rd of February and it, they said that it was that day that the toxin-laden train derailed just meters from their successful um, garbage truck business um, which they'd grown from five customers to more than seven seven thousand over an eighteen year period in and around this close knit Ohio town. Um and she said that it's totally wrecked our life. She told BBC choking back in tears and in the parking lot of his business where the stench of chemicals and sulfur from the derailed remains uh powerful. 
and furthermore he added that I'm at the point now where um, where I want to be out of here he added and he further said that we're going to relocate and we can't do it no more so Mr. Hammer's eyes uh, are red and swollen which the credits of the lingering physical impact of the chemicals spilled in East Palestine but he said that he and his wife told the BBC that their main wounds are unseen and psychological he, he said that I'm losing so so much sleep I've already been to the doctors twice and I'm taking anxiety pills he said and this is 10 times worse than just losing my livelihood we built this business so like her father uh, Miss Hannah um, said that she spent sleepless nights worrying about their business their 10 employees and the town where she spent 20 years of her life and already several dozens of their long-standing customers have cancelled their collection services and said that they plan to leave East Palestine um, and they commented that I'm afraid for the people that live here she said and then I don't know anybody who can sleep because it's on so many fronts it's your business it's your health and it's the health of your friends and standing on the Mount of Dirt within sight of the shared remains of several uh, railways cars from the derailed Mr. Hanna likened the incident to East Palestine, Palestine's uh, Chernobyl a reference to an April uh, 1986 nuclear accident in the Soviet Ukraine um, and he's not alone over the course of two days in the East Palestine several residents told the BBC that they considered the derailment of a seminal movement moment in the town's history and at least for the foreseeable future their lives will be measured by what happened before the 3rd February disaster and what took place after um, so that that's just uh, another news um, and you know obviously our thoughts and prayers go out to those that are affected another news uh, you know which which is uh, which is also uh, the most read on BBC. Uh, one of the most read is the otter killed young beavers released at Loch Lomond. So an otter is suspected to have killed two beaver kits released at Loch Lomond last month. And the kits, along with their parents and three siblings, were relocated at the Tayside to a nature reserve as part of the efforts to boost biodiversity. So the dead beavers um, and an otter was spotted on remote camera footage last week and and conservationists said that uh, a post-mortem examination had confirmed an otter had preyed on one of the kits and uh, um, RSPB Scotland, which is involved in the beaver project, suspects that the second kit had suffered the same fate and its body remains missing. And in a blog post about the deaths and the charity said that young beavers were vulnerable to falling prey to otters, foxes, pine martens, birds of prey and large pike. And it added that studies also show that the kid morality can be quite high, especially in the first year. And uh, and further said that none of this makes it any easier um, and very, very sad to have lost these kids. Uh, despite it being in a natural process, and thankfully the rest of the family seems to be doing well. So that's uh, that's another news. Um, and and I guess in in this sense, if we look at the Islamic perspective as well, uh, 
you know, Islam also emphasizes that we should look after animals. Um, in fact, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, one of the titles he was given was he was the Rahmatul Alameen, that he was the mercy for the whole of mankind, not just for humans alone, but also for animals. And we show, um, you know, we see various narrations where, you know, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, he he discarded or he, he told people that uh, have the practice of branding animals that he told them to stop as uh, this was uh, this was abuse on the animals. So as Muslims, you know, we, we should also uh, look after the animals and it is our duty here as well. So with with that, uh, having done the news, we're just going to be going into a small break. And uh, after the small break, we will be going into our first segment. We will be looking at, a, you know, in a world of science, does religion still matter? So this is the discussion we will be looking at. But don't go anywhere. We'll be back shortly after this break. You're listening to The Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Sometimes it is seen that a prayer is carried on until it is about to be accepted, and then the supplicant gets tired and the result is failure and frustration. Frustration results in the denial and effectiveness of prayer and gradually culminates in the denial of God. It is said, if there is a God who accepts prayer, why have not those prayers been accepted which were offered over a long period? If those who think thus and stumble were to reflect upon their lack of perseverance, they would come to know that all their frustration is the result of their own haste and impatience, which generated an ill concept of the powers of God and resulted in despair so one should never get tired. There is no excellence, the possibility of which is vouched for by reason, of which God Almighty is bereft like an unfortunate human being. The wisdom of no wise one can point to an excellence which is not to be found in God Almighty. The maximum of all excellences that a person can conceive of is found in him. He is perfect from every point of view in his being, his attributes and his good qualities and he is absolutely free from all defects. This is a truth which distinguishes a true religion from a false one. When a person experiences in the shape of beneficence those divine attributes which constitute his beauty, his faith is strengthened beyond measure and he is drawn towards God as iron is drawn towards a magnet. His love for God increases manyfold, and his trust in God becomes very strong. Having experienced that all his good is in God, his hopes in God are strengthened. He continues to incline towards God naturally, without pretense and affectation, and finds himself dependent upon God's help every moment and believes firmly through the contemplation of divine attributes that he will be successful because he has experienced 
in his own person many instances of God's grace, favour and generosity. Therefore, his supplications proceed from the fountain of power and certainty, and his resolve becomes extremely firm and unshakable. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Ozbilahimina Shaitan Rajim, Bismillah Rahman Rahim. Aslam alaikum, peace be upon you, and welcome back to the Breakfast Show. You are joined by myself, Toki Ramadan, Imam Asan Maksud, here in the studio of Voice of Islam, and we are looking at the topic in a world of science, does religion still matter? So What's the gist of the story? Uh, so new results uh, released today from the 2021 census have revealed that most people, 73 and under in Wales, take no religion. And the results underlined uh, the more general census religion figures released in November were more uh, people uh, take no religion than Christian. And Wales Humanist has said that the result showed that Wales faces a non-religious future and that public bodies need to keep up with today's demograph. And the least religious age um, over 18 in Wales is 27, where 66% people uh, take no religion. And for all age groups, the census saw 47% taking no religion and and 44% taking Christian. And the high numbers of taking no religion were in spite of the census question on religion being widely recognized as a biased and uh, leading one. In reality, England and Wales are even less religious in terms of identity, belief and practice than the census results suggest. So research shows uh, that those taking the Christian and uh, frequently not religious in their beliefs or practice. For example, less than half uh, believe that Jesus was a real person who was the Son of God, died and then came back to life. And in general, those who who ticked um, Christian do so because they were Christianed uh, because their parents and because their parents are and were Christians or because they went to a Christian school and as well as being less religious than uh, England, Wales also led the way in recent years in changing its laws to reflect the demographs. And last year, a new curriculum act came into effect that mandates that equal teachings of humanism along major religions. 
and Wales also has relatively few stated state-funded faith schools and 14% of the total. But unfortunately, the new curriculum does not address the requirement for all state schools to carry out a uh, a daily act of Christian worship and law that is completely out of step with majority non-religious population. And in schools of no religion, no religious character, this must be Christian in spite of 59% of school-age pupils having ticked no religion. And this law must now seriously come under question. And school leaders in England, which has the same law, called for it to be scrapped when the headline census resulted came out in November. And there are other areas of public life where equal treatment of the non-religious still needs to be realized. And um, pastoral care in hospital and prison is domained by Christian chapels with no paid position for non-religious pastoral carers. And all civic ceremonies also need to be reviewed to make sure they represent the population in Wales as it stands today. I mean, this is a, is a very, um, this is a very important question. Uh, you know, does religion still matter in this day and age? And uh, one thing, you know, uh, I realized, Asan, is that, you know, when whenever uh, I, you know, whenever whenever I go. Um, you know, to the local high street with uh, some of the members of the MD Muslim Youth Association. Um, and we give out flyers uh, for Islam and, you know, we're promoting Islam. Um, you know, you will find, you will, you will see both both sides of the coin. A lot of the people, you know, um, some some of them, a lot, a lot of them will say that, well, you know, we well, we don't believe in religion um you know they you, you'll also get a lot of them who uh, you know they they're quite islamophobic at times as well so it's it's good to get a view of generally what the public thinks um and uh, you know uh, we being imams uh, you know th- that is one of our duties that uh, also you know if if the question of islamophobia we we should address it and we should let people know that you know islam is a very peaceful religion but then another question which we are discussing is uh, does religion truly matter do we really need religion in our lives um, and uh, you know if we you know for example um, we we see that on a on, on a normal day-to-day be- basis uh, as a Muslim you know we're required to remember God Almighty five times a day and uh, whenever we go to the mosque, one particular verse, which is always highlighted, is or which is written on the dome, is Allah bi zikrullah that truly it is the remembrance of God which has find comfort. So we see that within Islam, remembering God Almighty is a very key aspect, and we are told that uh, we should remember God Almighty five times a day. But not only that, um, there. We are told that whenever we are doing anything, we whenever we store, start anything, we we should say Bismillah ar-Rahman that in the name of Allah the Gracious, the Merciful. Or whenever we are going, uh, we go, walking towards an elevated position, you know, we should remember God. We should say Allahu Akbar. So we see that on every aspect, um, 
we should be always be we should always have zikr of god almighty within 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 our within our on our tongue you know zikr meaning remembering god almighty um reading words of prayer and remembering him but at the same time worshiping god almighty five times a day and the holy prophet peace be upon him he very beautifully explained this he said that a a companion approached the holy prophet peace be upon him and he asked the holy prophet peace be upon him that you know can you please ex- explain some of the benefits of salat you know why why do i have to read uh, salat five times a day and the holy prophet peace be upon him explained that well you see the stream which is running outside if you were to bathe in this stream five times a day would there be any dirt left on your body and the companion replied that no there there will not be any dirt left on my body and the holy prophet peace be upon him he said well this is this is the effect which salat has on your body um and uh, you know just like when we when we physically clean ourselves this is what salat does to our spiritual soul uh, i also remember watching a question and answer session um and the the fourth caliph of the um the muslim community as mr tahir ahmed may uh, god almighty have mercy on him he beautifully explained that well if we look at for example um let's take uh, let's take uh, great britain for example you know obviously we all of us we have three we eat three times a day but generally um you know you, you in uk we're very much known to have our little snacks um and apart from our three meals we're always continuously eating we're always having a little bit of crisps or biscuits so we're continuously eating so if we are looking after our physical nourishment then we should also be looking after our physical nour- nourishment and that is through salat and and in actuality this is one of the main aspects of religion that uh, you know you should have that connection with god almighty we do have a short clip for our listeners as well um uh, on the question of religion and and the question uh, is why is it important to have religion um and uh, this is the answer which has been given by the by by the fifth caliph azam azam surah mat mai may allah be his helper he's given an answer to this so let's listen it as far as morals are concerned an atheist can have good morals right he can have the quality of speaking truth all the time whereas some believers or the followers of the religion do not speak truth they are sometimes are liars so in that way that atheist is better than those believers right but at the same time these atheists believe that all the good morals came to this world or were introduced to the humanity through messengers of god through the prophets right so they they admit that the good morals were given to us by prophets so that shows that it is the religion 
which has brought good morals in this world for human beings. Right? So we do have our first uh, first uh, guest with us. We have uh, on the line John Carter and and John. Um, good morning to you. Thank you good for morning. Jo- thank you for joining us at the Voice of Islam radio station. Um, so I just wanted to read your introduction as well. Um, so you're a retired teacher of the French and German uh, who worked in schools in Southwest London until you moved into IT and you grew up in the north of England with a mainly uh, informally Christian background and uh, says my notes say that uh, he lost any faith he had at around 14 years of age and has never returned to belief and in your adult life uh, you infor- you were informally an atheist until more recent years uh, you took on some more formal commitments to atheism and humanism uh, and since 2021, the humanist representative on the Merton S.A.C.R.E., uh, the legally established committee for supervising the teaching of religious education in Merton. So thank you uh, for joining us this morning. Morning. So do you, do you think that science and religion are two distinct fields or are there links between the two? Um, well, I'd sort of like to start by defining some terms, really. Uh, and immediately for someone who's not a person of religion, there's a difficulty. Um, for, for a humanist, fundamental is the commitment to science and, and to scientific method, you know, as, as a way of getting to truth in all things. So we're not just talking about the cosmos, but uh, the principles of the functioning of, of society and, and the best ways of promoting good. Um, so it is science first. Science and knowledge go together. And for me, scientific method is unrivaled as a way of exploring any reality from the nature of, of black holes um, to how we educate our children. And the principles really are thought, freedom of thought and expression, um, inquiry, learning, reason, rationality, questioning, objectivity, assessing and reassessing, very important, and an avoidance of prescription and compulsion and conditioning. These are the essential values. Um, now, I wouldn't say that these are things that have been avoided in the history of religions. Um, religions have been, in, in varying degrees, I suppose, platforms for just these values. Uh, in history, religions, as a matter of record, I would think, have been conduits for, you know, for exploring and defining truth. Uh, not the only conduits, but possibly, at least in the past, the most important ones. And you've you just been talking about changes to attitudes in religion and that maybe uh, routes for exploring truth are, are, are now much more diverse. Um, the difficulty, I think, in discussion comes at the point where religions depend on features of thought that are based on faith and belief. And it gets, for me anyway, more difficult if adherents of religion claim their beliefs and faith are provable and can be subjected to rational examination and justification, it gets more difficult still for a humanist if you look at the, I think we can say honestly, vast evidence in the history of the religions showing that by their own definition, the central requirements are a priori belief and also often, unfortunately, an intolerance of questioning and dissent. So for people of religion, it's belief first, fundamentals done and dusted. 
Um, and keeping to the question of links between science and religion, but from a humanist perspective, I would say the name like humanism, we must look at human beings and just see how they respond to the challenges of describing our existence. We need to describe and understand why human beings respond to existence in ways that produce religious belief. It would be impossible for a responsible humanist to be dismissive of religious thinking. But our task, I think, is to assess as objectively as we can all the manifestations of religiousness and include both um, the good and the bad. Thank you. Thank you so much for that, John. Um, moving on to the second question, do you think science can be influenced by religion? Well, uh, trying to take it as generally as I can, uh, human thinking is influenced by human thinking. We're in all kind of a big sea of thoughts, and we get thoughts and influences from all sorts of areas. Um, important principles for a humanist is that all thinking, um, all ideas, all conceptualizations come from human beings and from nowhere else. No matter how elaborately some ideologies might manifest themselves, for me, um, they're all projections of the human condition. Um, scientists do tend to be agnostic or atheist and at least loosely humanist. Some scientists, of course, as we know from history and even present day, remain steadfastly religious. But, you know, I have to point out that people who are religious, whether they're scientists or not, adhere to a huge array of loyalties to different and often irreconcilable belief systems. Um, a major consideration for us uh, for us all, in fact, is the fact that scientific knowledge, as, you, as a lot of people understand it, chemistry, physics, and so on, um, cannot in themselves be identified with um, such things as universal knowledge, understanding, uh, responsibility, humanity. Um, Einstein was not a person of religion, but recommended to Roosevelt that he did not use the atomic bomb. Roosevelt was dead, <laughs> and Truman decided to use it. Uh, I remember myself growing up in the 60s, heart transplants were done for the first time, accompanied by some dire predictions from people of religion of severe moral consequences. The horrors of Nazis conducting purportedly scientific experiments on Jews. And also there's the ideas of Charles Darwin, which were used by social thinkers as justification for less than human views on managing populations. So there's a whole pile of confusion here, and how do we sort it out? And I'd suggest we could begin by thinking about two strands. One, that a knowledge of, say, the functioning of atoms might make a person critical of supernatural belief systems, but it doesn't provide in itself all the necessary judgment a human being might need. And then, of course, the issue of religion. I mean, if you meet a person of religion, you cannot guarantee to know what their views might be on economics or social policy, or the major or minor political issues of the past or of today. And there are bitter divisions on all matters amongst people of religion. So what is um, religious influence? Um, most of the forces, I think, that serve responsible thinking people are not essentially religious. Awareness of your own bias, um, awareness of your own, your own deficiencies, um, awareness of being accountable to other intelligent, critical, knowledgeable, high-functioning people. Um, this is the way people proceed, and it's very much a sort of standard for science. Um, an interesting idea to pursue might be that awareness of what um, people of religion might call sinfulness might or might not make a person more responsible or even a better scientist, but um, I, w I would doubt it. 
Great, thank you so much for that, John. Um, I do have my co-host here. He also has a few questions to ask you, uh, mm-hmm. so I'm just going to pass the mic on to him. Uh, good morning, John. Uh, so I've also got a few questions. Uh, the first one is, uh, do you think in this day and age, science is more accepted than religion due to its vivid reasoning? Uh, yeah, I mean, this is a really interesting question that you asked me to, to think about, with the emphasis possibly on the influence of its vivid reasoning. Um, to put it bluntly, I'd say that science has had religion on the run for a couple of hundred years, and I think good has come from that. Um, if you read scientific papers in any area, I have an interest, for example, in linguistics here, so I'm not talking about pure science, but physics and chemistry and so on. And it's phenomenal in scientific papers what feats of reason and argument are daily achieved. Um, one could say the same reason tracks on to Christianity as has come down to us and are still read today, Aquinas and Augustine, for example. But vivid reasoning can be turned to just about any argument, and that's one of the great challenges for rationalism. If you wish to appreciate the mind, then read the original papers they published, and not just the reports that read us via the media. Read the writers of the Scottish Enlightenment, which uh, I, had, I didn't do till very late, and felt quite shocked that I didn't know what sparkling brilliance was represented in that movement. But in the end, um, vivid reasoning is not the criterion to judge by. Um, science, as we know it, is a very broad term, isn't it, we're discussing here, represents a huge accumulation of theories. But in the end, however, given the accumulation, all point one way, by the structure of atoms, the age of the Earth, the age of the universe. And uh, from my view as a humanist, the vital necessity is of free thought and inquiry, i.e. the methods of thinking. If you read Darwin, who is an extreme influence of people, of course, um, leaving religion behind, uh, you marvel at the lucidity of his writing and his capacity to describe complex realities. But in the end, of course, his ideas stand or fall on their accuracy and provability. Um, I've been reading in my role on the Merton Sacre, which you announced, uh, you know, one of the reasons I'm here speaking today, and again, thank you for the invitation. Um, there's been writings by religious academics on new ways to teach RE in schools using a model called worldviews, not abandoning the spiritual and wide philosophical needs of children in schools, but changing the way that we teach it to, to, to fit the changes you've just been talking about on your show. And these readings, these papers by religious academics are, are wonderful. They're impressive, they're innocent, they're formed, and they're articulate. Um, Bottom line, uh, yes. I, I think the force of argument in scientific writing is colossal. And if I'm mad, I'd add, although I'm not religious, I take no particular pleasure when I hear and read low-grade advocates for religions and religious views. There's too much of it around. And um, I'd much rather that the um, vividness of reasoning and use of language that people are capable of should come from a side that, you know, obviously I, I don't uh, identify with. Thank you very much. Uh, my next question is, uh, what kinds of questions do you think religion answers uh, that science cannot answer? Oh, well, again, a, a message I think you might expect, a very blunt reply, which uh, as, a, as a humanist you might expect is bluntly, there aren't any. Um, my main message, um, as I said previously, is that science is inquiry, free thinking, rationality, reason. 
we do know that the cognitive capacities of humans are deficient, and we kind of stumble um, towards understanding. Religions tend to work on assumed ideas. Scientific method works by propositions and revisions and no assumptions. Um, science internally provides for questioning, so no external source of reasoning is more likely to challenge science more effectively. Challenge is always necessary, uh, as long as challenge is not presumed to be legitimate for no, for no other reason that it can be made. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, my last question would be, uh, for the benefit of our listeners, would you like to tell us what the role of science is in religion? Again, a very direct answer from me on this. The role, the role of science is to challenge religion. Um, as a humanist, you might expect me to answer that way. Um, but we've got to talk about all aspects of human experience for the simple reason that religions don't hold back from pretending to cover all experience. We're not just talking about um, the phases of the moon or um, the structure of black holes. So when religions prescribe how people should think, how they should behave in society, what's good and what's bad, what's right and what's wrong, um, similar principles of accountability should apply to any ideology, religious or, or not, um, just as if we're evaluating Luke, Newton's laws of motion. Um, what is based on predetermined prescription and what is based on observation? Um, how does the human mind work in relation to values and actions in society? What determines how people think and react? Um, it, that's a science in itself. We all know, whatever perspective we come from, that human beings are capable of believing anything. Uh, in your own religious considerations, there was a voice on just before I came on the program talking about false religions. So we all know that human beings are capable of believing just about anything, quite distressingly so in some states. So how do we know what is value and, and what is what is dross? As humans, humanists, we observe humans in society, nothing else. And, and we try to evaluate what works and what doesn't. Great. Thank you so much, uh, John Carter, for joining us this morning um, and uh, sharing your views on, here on uh, Voice of Islam. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. That's the number to call if you do want to get in touch. We are moving now on to our next uh, guest. Uh, we are joined uh, by Abdul Haq Kompi. Assalamualaikum, peace be upon you, and thank you for joining us at the Voice of Islam radio station. Waalaikum salam warahmatullah. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Uh, thank you again uh, for joining us, uh, Abdul Haq, uh, uh, all the way from uh, Netherlands. Um, we are discussing this uh, very important question on, uh, you know, what is religion important in the current society that we live in? And uh, we were just speaking on this as well to John Carter. Um, and, you know, I wanted to um, ask this question to you as well, because you, uh, you know, you've converted to Islam and accepted the uh, Ahmadiyya Muslim community as well. Um, you know, what, what uh, made that step for you to join the Ahmadiyya Muslim community as well? Um, if you can also explain, uh, you know, why did religion become an important aspect in your life? If, if you can please briefly explain on this. Yes, of course. Um so what I was uh, experiencing in my own life was uh, 
that I <clears throat> I was looking for a way to um, to give meaning to life. Uh, so I was re- raised without religion, and uh, uh, the the ways that uh, um, that I had learned to uh, give meaning to my life were, uh, you know, just to do the things that you like uh, and to um, make uh, the best of fun. Uh, but uh, in the end, it uh, it didn't make me happy. So then started a search for uh, what should life then be about. And uh, through a series of experiences, I I then ended uh, with the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for that. Um, and... Uh, how impo- how can the importance of uh, religion uh, be taught to students from a young age yeah um so um so what i was thinking when you uh, sent me the questions um so i had been thinking about the um, the view, uh, the view of the uh, fourth khalifa of the amdir muslim community uh, I remember that he said about education that uh, it is very important to teach religion in schools, but not to be, uh, you know, sectarian about it. So not to be teaching one truth of one religion. Mm. But he said that it is very important to teach children about the reality of virtue. And uh, I think that's a very attractive way to uh, teach about religion in schools. Uh, so you would be teaching about virtues such as, uh, you know, mercy, patience, courage, uh, sacrifice, this sort of thing. And these are all things that are close to the life of people and even close to the life of children. You know, children, they also even like all these stories about the superheroes. uh, And maybe they are attractive because they represent virtue. And um, virtue is just such an important... uh, uh, nourishment for our soul and for our um, well-being and meaning in our life. Uh, so I think this is exactly the teaching of, of the Promised Messiah that he says that we have to adopt the attributes of God and to uh, learn about the reality of God in this way that we adopt his attributes. Absolutely. And uh, I think if you if you teach children this in school this will be uh, very attractive to them and very understandable. They can practice it in their own life. Um, and it will not be very confusing that they have to learn a lot of difficult theories, uh, which would be more um, applicable for a later age, Absolutely. I think. Thank you. Thank you so much for that, uh, Abdullah Kompier. We are reaching the 8 o'clock news, but if I can please uh, request you to stay on hold as well. After the news, we have a few more questions to ask you. Um, if that's fine uh, so we're just going into the 8 o'clock news and we'll be back shortly after that of course yes you are listening to the recording of a live show please do not call or text as this is a recording 
and lines are now closed. In the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful. Peace be upon you and welcome back to The Breakfast Show. Uh, you are joined by myself, uh, Tukir, and also Imam Asan Maksud here in the studio of Voice of Islam. Um, and we were listening to Abdul Haqqombie and he is still uh, with the line with us and you know discussing the topic on in the world of science, does religion still matter? Uh, As-salamu alaykum, uh, Abdul Haqq, are, are you still with us? Yes, uh, I'm here. Wa alaykum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Thank you. Um, I wanted to ask you, do you think it's uh, necessary to include religious education as part of um, part of the school curriculum? Yes, I think so, because um, religion, uh, the first reason is that religion is such an important fabric of history and of society that uh, if we don't teach about religions in schools, then we, the children would miss a lot of uh, understanding of this fabric of our society. So that's the first reason. And uh, the second reason is, of course, to be uh, able to mutually understand each other. So uh, people with different religions to be able to understand each other's uh, thoughts and, uh, and views. Um, and uh, the the third reason would be, uh, as we discussed before the news, that uh, religion is such an important source of teaching of virtue, and virtues are just the essence of survival of our civilization. I think that if we lose this, uh, if we lose the virtues of uh, you know honesty, courage, mm. patience. Mm. Uh, and uh, tolerance, all these things, then uh, I think it will be very quickly finished, as we are seeing today, actually. And so it is just essential that these things are uh, are taught in the schools. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I have my co-host here, uh, Imam Asad Maksudi, also has a question he wanted to ask you. as uh Brother, uh, my question would be, uh, many schools uh, choose to teach selected religions as part of their curriculum. Uh, do you think it is better to include a wider range of religions so that students are more aware of different religious beliefs? Yes, absolutely, definitely. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, of course, because uh, if we are going to use schools for indoctrination uh, to be to teach children that uh, your um, group only has the truth and the other people don't have the truth, uh, then you get sectarianism, which is actually dangerous for society. So we should uh, encourage the, the understanding between people to uh, encourage a wider understanding of the world. And uh, this is, of course, alhamdulillah, how Islam has always seen the different religions as an inclusive, in an inclusive way and not in an exclusive way. And uh, and so it is just so important to to teach a wider understanding of religion and to yeah to just to be acquainted with the different stories of different people. Absolutely, thank you so much for that. And uh, Abdullah, do, do you think uh, you know uh, religion? You mentioned that you know it definitely serves a purpose that uh, you know one learns so many moral skills as well uh, you know and has a purpose within life can you also explain um, 
you know why why do you think uh why do you think religion is important and why do you think um we should not forget it we should not put it to one side yeah you know you um uh, your uh, assistant that sent me these questions yesterday and one of the questions was uh, i think what the previous um speaker was talking about that uh, is uh, religion important in this world of science mm. and uh, so one of the thoughts that came to my mind was that you can ask the same question as um, is is eating still important in this world of science mm. right so um we can we can um, try to understand the world and uh, to try to um, to to inquire in in the world and this is one virtue um so so science is one of the virtues that is part of religion at least part of islam um but uh, if we ask that is religion still important in this world then you can also compare it to eating because even Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam also uh, many times compared the spiritual food of uh, our contact with Allah to the physical food that our body needs so our uh, our soul needs spiritual food our soul is connected to our body uh, and uh, so this is just so vital for our well-being and for our humanity to uh, have the spiritual food that is offered by uh, by good religion absolutely thank you so much abdul haq compie for joining us this morning um and uh, enlightening us on this subject thank you so much thank you for having me thank you 02086877878 that's the number to call if you do want to get in touch with us um Asana, this is a very important uh, topic, you know, that we are discussing. I mean, religion itself is a way of life, is a code of conduct by Allah the Almighty and makes us better people and it gives us a sense of certainty. And, you know, what is the purpose of religion when we look at the Holy Quran? Uh, we find that it says in the Holy Quran that that the whole purpose of man and the jinn is that they may worship uh, God Almighty they may have a communion with uh, with the Allah Ta'ala and this is this is the purpose of 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 the religion and the promised Messiah peace be upon him also in countless of his writings he said that you know even if one has to sacrifice everything to attain this fountainhead then you know one should one should do so um, and this should be the purpose of our lives. And another verse of the Holy Quran which comes to my mind when we are discussing this topic is the, the Holy Quran mentions that Zahar al-Fasadu fil-Bahri wal-Bahar that at a time when the, the Prophet comes into the society, it, that is the time where the society becomes the most corrupt. We look at, for example, the time the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, uh, his at the time of his advent, the the Arabs they were known as, you know, the they were known as completely backward society. Some of the things that were involved in gambling, um, you know, fighting, 
some of the some of the vices within the society were very much uh, very much you know rampant and the prophet peace be upon him came at that time and it is very well noted that uh, the meccans at that time they were idol worshippers and they had an idol for every single day um so if there are 360 65 days in a year they had an idol for every single day uh, which they worshiped and the holy prophet peace be upon him and he and he came and he preached that no that there is only one god and what we see is that such a person not just from the life of the holy prophet peace be upon him but from every prophet uh how from such a uh, such a situation where there's only a few of them there's only very few in number and how within a span of couple of years how god almighty helps them and this is the promise that he made to the holy prophet peace be upon him as well that uh, uh, it's as it mentions in the holy holy quran la aqlibana ana wa rusuli kataballahu la aqlibana wa rusuli that uh, god almighty has ordained that uh, surely he and his prophet shall prevail and this is what we see uh, when the prophets come that god almighty helps them so much that uh, even in the holy prophet peace be upon him within a span of 10 ki- 10 years we we know the conquest of makkah I, i wanted to move the question to you as well um if you can also explain the importance why do we need religion within our lives yes brother takir indeed as you were mentioning uh, religion gives us certainty about god and uh, when we develop certainty we become better as a person as a whole and this is why the prophets came as you were mentioning uh, and the promise of messiah uh, at, uh, at different occasions g- gave a very beautiful example that no man would intentionally drink a bottle of poison and that's also the case with sin and the reason people commit sin is uh, the reason people do injustice or the reason there is violence in the world is they do not recognize their creator and they do not know about god who created them who is a source of goodness and when true believers come to know about god because of their love of allah the almighty they abstain from all kind of sins so religion enables us to become better people by recognizing our creator and fulfilling his rights and also by fulfilling the rights of his creation so this is the purpose of religion and the promise of messiah al-islam uh, further explains this i've got a quote uh, he says what is religion it is the path one adopts for oneself in reality everyone has a religion or creed an irreligious person who does not believe god exists still has to choose their path to follow which in essence is their religion however one should stop to think whether the path they have chosen in life truly gives them everlasting happiness peace and tranquility religion is only a general word it means the path one treads on and it is not a word that exclusively applies to faith experts in the arts sciences physics medicine astronomy and any field of knowledge also have canons doctrines and beliefs however it is a certainty that these will not provide salvation to anyone the promise messiah says just as a soul requires a body and words need meaning so too does mankind stand in need of religion 
The point here is not whether the being is called Allah, God or Parmeshwar. Rather, the real issue is how one perceives the being he calls out to. Our view, the Prophet Messiah says, our view is that whatever name one assigns to the higher being, the real question is, how do they recognize and comprehend him? What attributes does, does that being possess? The actual matter one should reflect, reflect on is the nature of the attributes of the divine being. So Islam has described the attributes of God and explains that uh, none have been suspended. Uh, elsewhere, the Promised Messiah said that the essence of religion is based on just two overriding aspects, which are the rights due to God and the rights due to his creation. Uh, he says that it is worth mentioning, it is worth remembering that religion is based on two rights. The first is the right owed to God. This includes how one should believe and have faith in God and manner he should be worshipped. And the second is the right that must be discharged to God's creation. This comprises of how one should display compassion, love, kind treatment and benevolence to God's creation and must elevate the afflictions, pain and sorrow. So in these words, the promised Messiah has silenced the critics of religions in a beautiful way by explaining that uh, true followers of religious of religions discharge the true principal rights upon which religion is based, the rights due to God and also the rights due to his creation. And the rights to God's creation are fulfilled when one shows true sympathy and compassion to God's creatures and shares uh, their pain and suffering and forgives and overlooks their face. And this is religion as explained by Islam. Great, thank you so much for that, Imam Asad Maksud. And that is it from uh, our first segment. Um, we will be going now uh, into our second segment and we'll be looking at is the education sector underfunded. Uh, so we're just going to be taking a short break and we'll be back shortly after that. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. A new station, the Voice of Islam, with live discussions, religion and culture. Understand the true teachings of Islam with the Voice of Islam. In the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful. Asalaamu Alaikum, peace be upon you, and welcome back to the Breakfast Show. Uh, you are joined by myself, Tokir, and Imam Asad Maksud here in the studio of Voice of Islam. And we're looking at the topic is the education sector underfunded? So, the gist of the story is that leaders of seven bodies representing all schools and the four main churches have written a letter warning of a crisis in education funding. And the unprecedented joint letter has been sent to the Northern Ireland Secretary and the head of the civil service. And on Tuesday, the Education Authority said that it could not make £110 million in saving this year. And in, in the said under investment in schools would affect every child and young person. And the letter to Chris 
because Heaton Harris and Jane Brady has been signed by the chief executive of the Council for Catholic Maintained Schools. Uh, Gary Campbell and Control Schools Support Council, uh, Mark Baker. And uh, negative impact for generations. Um, and also on this, um, one of the speakers, they said that the focus must be on the restoration of education funding to levels that fully support the needs of school and ensure children have the best start in life and failure to address this problem will have a negative impact for many generations to come um, at almost 2.5 billion pounds the education budget in Stompton second largest behind health um, also uh, there are so many children being missed who need additional support right now with more cuts. Children cannot fulfill their educational needs and they are being left and could potentially become more vulnerable as adults. And the need, they, they need the support uh, when they are children, otherwise it won't be set up for life. And the autism um, NICEO Kerry Boyd described the proposed budget cuts as alarming and said that it would be particularly worrying for SEN children. She said that the Autism Helpline receives over 6,000 calls each year with education remaining the primary reason for concern. She further said that many parents have highlighted the difficulties with the lack of access to the right support for their children. And this is further uh, com compounded by many services being unavailable, which has a profound impact um, on autism and child's emotional well-being. Therefore, any cut in the current budget would undoubtedly have a detrimental impact on our children's education and outcomes and ultimately prevent them from reaching their full potential. So we will be um, having our first guest and we will be listening to Professor Terry Buki uh, shortly. I uh, just wanted to read the introduction that uh, Dr. Terry is the Educational Programme Coordinator for the Mansfield campus of the Ohio State University and teaches co courses on mathematics, education and equity and diversity in education. And her research focuses in on equity and access to mathematics for all student learners with a concentration in power sharing and developing student agency. So we're just waiting for her. Uh, but this itself is a very important topic and certainly from an Islamic point of view um, you know education is something which has been very much emphasized by the Holy Prophet peace be upon him as well and you know we know that uh, the Holy Prophet peace be upon him said that even if you have to go travel to China you know you should attain knowledge um, but at the time he said it 1400 years ago the best mode of transport at that time was through horses through camels and uh, you know Arabia and China being so much distant you know he said that even if you have to go that far uh, meaning that even in great difficulty you should try to do that just for the purpose to attain knowledge I do believe we have our first uh, caller with us uh, thank you so much for joining us Dr. Uh, Terry 
Hi, how are you? I'm doing very good. Thank you very much. Um, so thank you. Thank you for joining us this morning. We wanted to ask for the benefit of our listeners. Can you please tell us a bit about yourself and how you got involved in in education and the math literacy initiative in Ohio? Sure. Um, my name is Terry Butchie. I was a classroom teacher um, in public schools for about 14 years. I taught middle school and high school in Ohio and um, was fortunate enough to be able to go to the university on a, a collaborative program that the, that the school I worked with um, had with the university. So um, went to school, uh, loved mathematics, and, and wanted to find out how to get other people interested in mathematics, um, and uh, graduated um, from Ohio State, and then was fortunate enough to be able to get a um, position, a tenure-track position there. So I've been teaching at Ohio State um, for 22 years now, in addition to the 14 years that I taught public school. A lot of the work that I do right now, um, I did a lot of work in uh, international teacher education in Haiti, in the countryside there, and then started working a little bit more closely to home, um, specifically in the area of mathematics and and within mathematics, uh, more pointedly in the um, area of access uh, to education and, and equity within mathematics classrooms. And trying to make mathematics classrooms a space where students can really engage with mathematics and not just be um, kind of receptacles of mathematical knowledge, rather um, kind of play with it and explore with it and create with it. So um, I worked very closely with Bob Moses. Bob Moses was a civil rights leader and Nick, which um, during the civil rights uh, movement in Mississippi, it's in the southern part of the United States, and he worked very um, hard with the community on um, registering people to vote and then turned his attention toward um, mathematics and the accessibility of mathematics and the careers and um, experiences and opportunities that come along with that and making sure that all students were able to access that knowledge. Great. Thank you so much for that introduction, Professor Terry. I want to ask you, what are the main issues facing the education system in USA? Do you think that uh, education is underfunded? Oh, certainly. Uh, well, I, I think it's underfunded, but it's also um, non, not equitably funded. So education is one of the areas in the United States where um, the public uh, in, in the regions where the schools are that region uh, pays approximately half of the um, amount of money that goes towards uh, children in schools. And so when you're in that kind of a situation where the community can vote um, through just regular elections, can vote on whether or not they want to um, increase the amount of mills, it's called, uh, to fund schools, the amount of money that goes into the schools for for their region or their little area, um, it just makes it very inequitable. So, so the wealthy areas um, are more likely to have a higher tax base, and the tax base is what funds a good portion of the local schools. And so, because all of the regions, all the areas, you know, you have 
very poverty-stricken areas, and those areas aren't going to have as much funds to go towards the schools. And so, so when you have that inequitable kind of funding and you still have the same kind of accountability for everyone, it just makes the playing field a bit really uneven. Great. Thank you so much for that. And what does the current pursuit of knowledge demand? Excuse me? Uh, what does the current pursuit of knowledge demand? Uh, in general, the current pursuit of knowledge? Yes. Uh, oh, uh, participation. I, 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 um, the pursuit of knowledge for all of us, I, I think, you know, I'm in higher education, so that's my job. My job is to kind of do research and develop and create new knowledge and then disseminate that knowledge to to other people so that we can learn and grow as a society. So I think one of the things that, that is a demand uh, that we need to work uh, more uh, toward, and this is universally, not just in the United States, is making sure that education is available and accessible to all of the world's citizens. Uh, if we, if we want to be the best that we can be, we have to, we have to learn and grow and develop and nurture and all those things. And, and um, right now, I don't think that every person has that same opportunity to learn as much as they actually could with someone, the assistance of a, um, what Vygotsky would say, a higher knower. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, Professor Terry, uh, my co-host here also has a few questions he wants to ask you. Um, so I'm, I'm just going to pass the mic on to him. Sure. Uh, good morning. Uh, so good the question morning. I have is, uh, is there a possibility that the future of funding education is something that could be imposed upon the state by the courts? Well, um, it has been. So, so there have been court cases that, um, in particular, there was a court case in Ohio a while ago um, where they they uh, determined that the funding was not equitable, but they really haven't had a good fix yet. There's a there's a proposal right now in the state of Ohio uh, to change some of the funding uh, uh, algorithms, the calculations that determine who gets what. Um, but I think it has to in the United States. It, um, it would have to go through like the federal government. So right now about half of the funds that districts get are through federal and state funds. And those, those funds are a little more equitable. It's the ones that come from the local municipalities that was a little off. And uh, I, I just don't see that changing any, any time soon. Uh, lastly, lastly, Dr. Richard, you have made an impact in your community through, um, community-engaged research and teaching, and why is it important to engage the community in research and teaching, and uh, what has stayed with you throughout this experience? Um, well, I, I started working with communities uh, when I started doing work in, in the countryside of Haiti, and I, I think, and in, in, in continued that on through my work with education in the United States and um, in some very fairly large cities in the United States. And I think one of the one of the errors that we make um, is in developing and creating new knowledge is doing it 
uh, in isolation of the people. And, 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 you know, one thing is, you know, we might not be asking the questions that people really want to know the answers to. So I think the the initial part of working with the community is what, what do we want to learn together? What are the things that are happening in our in our community that we want to affect change on? And so as creators of knowledge and um, and, and academics, uh, working with the community to both address the problems that they have and to make sure that the things that we learn actually get out into the public, into the hands of the people who actually need um, that kind of assistance or, or want to work together with, with other folks to learn more about whatever the situation is, whether that's education, community building, or, or civil rights. Great, Professor Terry. Thank you so much for joining us this morning and sharing your expertise on this particular field. Thank you so much. Sure. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. That's the number to call if you do want to get in touch with us. So that was Professor Terry, um, and as mentioned, that she is from the educational program coordinator for the Mansfield campus of the Ohio State University and teaches courses of mathematics, education and equity and diversity in education and her research focuses on equity and access to mathematics for all student learners Um, so thank you so much for for joining us Uh, we do have our next uh, guest with us, we are joined by Zayan Khaled and Zayan Khaled he is the local coordinator for the Ahmadiyya Muslim Youth Association. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you for joining us this morning. Jazakallah very much for uh, inviting me here. Thank you for joining us. So to start off, can you please, uh, for the benefit of our listeners, tell us a bit about yourself and how important do you think education is in Islam? Yeah, uh, so about myself, uh, I have recently graduated uh, in 2022 in economics and business finance and now I'm working as a asset analyst at a software company mm-hmm. and yes and the question that you asked how important is education well uh, I believe it really depends how you view this question as because education serves a lot of purposes but in the world that we live in today I think the importance has shifted a little bit for example, if you graduate from university, uh, the first thing that employers will ask is, you know, what grade did you get? Now, you can have two different people. You can have one person who got a first class, and then you have a second person who got a 2-2. Now, maybe the person who got a 2-2 has still more knowledge than the person who got a first class. And right now, most of the employers, what they're looking at and what they really care about is the amount of experience a particular student has. So this gets to show that in, uh, the importance of education is going down and the importance of education and the, lev- the amount of skills that a particular person or a student has, has got more value. Thank you for that. And... Uh, with the development of the society, how do you think the education sector has changed? Yeah, so I believe the education system is still the same, but it's the mindset of society that has changed. I mean, if we look at the example of Pakistan, for example, 
A uh, long time ago, not even that long, five years, ten years ago, down the line, uh, especially for girls, you know, society was in such a way that they didn't allow girls uh, to study for the education because, you know, they thought it's better for girls to stay at home uh, just or just get them married. However, now society actually understands the importance of education and what it brings them to the table. Now you will see that there are a lot more people, especially a lot more girls in Pakistan, who are pursuing higher education. It goes the same for uh, students in UK, where we see every single student, student now taking uh, bachelor's degrees because they know the importance of education. And society has changed in a way because they know without this education, you know, we are not able to get jobs. We're not able to run into the system. Great. Thank you so much, uh, Zian. Um, my co-host also has a few questions he wanted to uh, ask you. Yeah. Uh, Assalamu alaikum, brother. Uh, the question I have is, uh, do you feel that the current way we are educating children uh, fully prepares them for the needs of the 21st century? Yeah, I personally, I don't believe so. Because you see, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, as I mentioned before, it doesn't really prepare them. Because you see, what does school exactly teach you? Okay, School doesn't teach you how to become successful. School doesn't teach you how to pay taxes. School doesn't pay you, sorry, school doesn't teach you how to do the basics of life you know it teaches your algebra it teaches you how to solve a triangle but it doesn't teach you the basics of life so although it prepares you how to you know be a successful person a successful worker in the matrix it doesn't tell you how to live life like the correct way for example you know you go to university uh they're supposed to study economics you're going to learn all of these basic stuff from a levels into university about okay how does economics how does this graph uh, affect you know supply and demand but once you graduate once you go into the job sector 95% of the jobs will not require uh, all the skills that you have learned throughout the school college or university life most employers only care about experience and uh, if you go to university, as I mentioned, most employers don't even care how much knowledge you have in your brain. All they care about is what grade did you get. For example, nowadays, students who have a 2-1 or a first-class degree, they are more preferred over those who have a 2-2. They don't really look at how much knowledge the student has right now. They look at what, does, what did the student get. And uh, because of this, I think uh, school, university doesn't really prepare students because it's not teaching them the basic etiquettes of life. It's basically training them for things that employers don't even care about because experience and skill is what employers care about. Zakala, brother. Uh, and lastly, do you think that the debt after education is deterring students from pursuing higher education? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think it's a main cause for students not taking for the education. 
I mean, if we look at bachelor's degrees, they cost £9,250 a year. And because this payment is made from the... Uh, you don't see the money. Most students don't really feel it, that they have spent a lot of money. However, I think the main problem is for those who are in Pakistan or just foreign people. But Pakistan is a good example because most of us are from there. Because they have to pay extra tuition fees, uh, almost double of the ones that students from the UK have to do, I believe they have, they have the greatest limitation. And for them, I believe that is a great uh, factor. But in, uh, in countries like UK, we have education for free up to the age of 16. The only debt we have is university. And we know for a fact that without having a bachelor's degree, you can almost not do anything in the UK. The minimum requirement uh, is a bachelor's degree. So I know for sure everyone is going to at least pursue bachelor science, also bachelor's of science degree. Then you have master's. There I would say that a debt is going to determine a person whether or not, you know, he's going to think about it. Should I do masters or not? It's going to bring me debt. I'm already 30,000 pounds down the drain. If I do a masters, you know, is it really worth it? Is it worth my time? Is it worth the money? Now, I believe that if masters was free, like right now, if you go to City University, 30,000 pounds for finance, minimum even if you go to King's, you know, £15,000 for Masters. So I would say if it was free, there would be more people today doing Masters degrees. But uh, due to debt, I think it's Masters that's uh, being affected. Great, thank you so much, uh, Zian Khalid. Uh, thank you for joining us this morning and sharing your views on this particular subject. Thank you. Zakala. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. That's the number to call if you do want to get in touch with us. Now, uh, before we do get our uh, next guest on, um, just wanted to uh, mention how important it is um, that Islam emphasizes on education. Um, you know, we I I was mentioning earlier that the Holy Prophet peace be upon him he said that you know you should travel as far as uh, China to attain knowledge, uh, meaning that even if you have to go through trouble, through difficulty to attain that knowledge, you should do so. And in another verse of the Holy Quran, if we look at chapter 1, verse 2, God Almighty, he is, is mentions God Almighty as the Rabbul Alameen, that Lord of all the worlds. And this means that he is the provider and he sustained of all humankind. So regardless of one's creed, one's race, one's class, God Almighty's grace and His blessing is for everyone, even those that deny Him or speak ill of Him. So Islam teaches that everyone, uh, you know, he, God Almighty, He provides for everyone. And similarly, you know, Muslims believe that uh, all humans are born equal as well. So everyone has the right to education as well. We will look more into this in detail, uh, but we do have Zofisha name on the line, and she is a teacher at secondary school in the UK. Assalamualaikum. Thank you for joining us at the Voice of Islam radio station. 
I, I wanted to ask you how much impact does funding have on teachers if you can please explain um so the impact can be direct in terms of resources and this can occur in inside the classroom where lack of resources can mean that the teacher doesn't is not able to um think of other ways of explaining something rather than just using a whiteboard and a pen and this can um this can perpetuate into the students learning as well because they would that means that they are not um learning how to learn and they're not being inspired by the learning but it can also be other things such as um lack of funding for training of teachers which can update the teachers knowledge base um or it could be more subtle where um less staff because of uh, lack of funding in schools less staff are being employed which uh, pressurizes teachers more and it affects their well-being which eventually um also transfers into the students well-being and it affects them as well so funding can have a direct and an indirect impact in the classroom preventing students from building a healthy relationship with learning Great, thank you so much for that, Sufisha. And what is the importance of education for young children? If you can also explain what inspires you to teach. So, um I cannot in- emphasize enough the importance of education. Um given that education is there to in- um in- inspire the love of learning in the child. The the purpose of the education system is to um to teach students how to learn. and it's not to just go through a process get a degree and then eventually get a job um it's for it's a lifelong process that starts in the classroom where the students should be um enthused should be inspired and they should be um taught how to learn for themselves independently as well so that they can um they develop a lo- love of learning and this can follow on onto their uh, children and so on and so forth um in terms of in terms of my what inspires me to teach it the kids um because every kid has a story especially in an asian setting i think um kids have a lot of baggage that they bring into the classroom and it, um if we don't look at that baggage in as well as what they um need to be learning we can't help them in their um learning either okay assalam alaikum warahmatullah so just as you were mentioning uh, what does an sen setting look like and what kind of provisions are provided for the students so sen settings could be um sm- are mainly smaller classes with students with special educational needs um but it can differ from school to school and setting to setting um some are a few students to a teacher ratio some have one to one ratio with one teacher and one student where the student has all of the teacher's attention um and in terms of the provisions uh, this depends on the special needs of the students sometimes the needs are more complex and they need to be um there's trauma there's educational needs there's um things like dyslexia dyspraxia um that can affect how the student learns and in, in order to make sure um the teacher is fulfilling these needs they need to incorporate some 
um, strategies such as maybe shorter activities or taking breaks in between or um, presenting the, the stuff in a different way or just just understanding or just listening to the child or if they're selecting selective mute um, we may need to understand that they may not respond to us in the same way as uh, another child would. Grace official name, uh, secondary school teacher. Thank you so much for joining us this morning and sharing your expertise within this field. Thank you. Exactly. That's the number to call if you do want to get in touch with us. A uh, very important topic we are discussing. I mean, we read in the Holy Quran, uh, God Almighty teaches us the beautiful prayer in chapter 20, verse 115, that uh, that oh my lord increase me in my knowledge and other verses uh, of the holy quran uh, they direct the believer towards exploring towards understanding the universe more if we look at for example chapter 3 verse 191 god almighty says in the holy quran and i quote that in the creation of heavens and the earth and in the alternation of the night and day they are indeed signs for men of understanding. So a lot of, not just these few verses, but there are many other verses of the Holy Quran that when we read them, it tells us to ponder over the universe and to expand our thinking and understanding. And this leads us more towards uh, towards knowledge. And we see that this is what happened, that at the time of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, uh, after Islam had flourished, we know that uh, the golden ages of Arabia, that it became the hub of knowledge that, and medicine itself at that time, the main language was was Arabic. Um, we know, for example, the first camera which was developed, it was developed by a Muslim person, Ibn Haytham, and his revolutionary work was recognized also by UNESCO. And when he was when he was declared as a pioneer of modern optics, and it, it is also interesting to note that the word camera itself is derived from the Arabic word kamara, uh, and others have also recognized such works of Muslim scholars even to this day. For example, if we look at New York Times, the article published by their science reporter Dennis. Over B, he mentions the role of Muslim polymath Al-Tulsi. The author states, and I quote, that Al-Tulsi published many great works on astronomy, ethics, mathematics, philosophy, marking him as one of the great intellects of, the, of his age. And Muslims created a society that in the Middle Ages was the scientific center of the world. And the Arabic language was synonymous with learning and science for 500 years, a golden age that can, among its credits, for the pursuers to modern universities. So we see that uh, there is a very rich history of the early scholars of Islam that had uh, that had uh, progressed in. And not only within within religion itself, but also in secular knowledge. Um, Imam Asan Maksud, anything uh, you wanted to mention on this? Uh, yes, brother. Uh, another point I would like to mention is that uh, Islam also teaches us that there is no uh, age limit in education. 
and the prayer you were mentioning, Rabbi Zidni Ilma, from the Holy Quran. Um, when this prayer was revealed, uh, the age of the Holy Prophet, uh, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was around 55 and 56. And this also shows that there is no age limit uh, in pursuing knowledge, in seeking knowledge. Uh, there are also various um, sayings of the Holy Prophet, uh, one such uh, being, Utlubul ilma minal mahdi lallahad. Uh, that uh, you should uh, seek knowledge from the very beginning until the very end uh, of your life. So, yeah, this point I wanted to mention that uh, in uh, seeking knowledge, there is uh, no age limit. Absolutely. And you mentioned the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. Um, there, There's countless narrations on, um, on which he emphasized that, you know, you should seek knowledge. He instructed that the literate well-educated, they should teach the illiterate um, and this helped the weak amongst the society to stand and advance. And it is also well known um, on the Battle of Badr which took place on the 18th month after migration, even the prisoners, uh, they were taken, uh, taken captives and the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, he provided ransom to those who were literate um, and they should first teach the illiterate members of the society and th- that just goes to show um you know how how much uh you know how, it just goes to show the vision of the holy prophet peace be upon him that he had at that time the 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 muslims that he said that even those prisoners they could get their ransom if they were to teach others of the society um and uh, this is what we see, as you know, mentioned earlier, that um, there was a great revolution within the society, and we know that many, uh, many great scholars, uh, Ibn Sina, you know, as mentioned earlier as well, the uh, polymath Al Tulsi, um, Ibn Ibn Haytham, just to name a few. Also, um, we know that in the 12th century, a Muslim uh, cartographer produced. Uh, what was regarded as the most extensive and accurate world map of the medieval times, which was used for centuries by travelers. And also, if we look in the medical field, many Muslim physicians and scientists made great discoveries and pioneers pioneered many inventions that remained in use today. And many of the surgical instruments were pioneered by the Muslim physician Al-Zawari in the 10th century. Um, and, and I mentioned Ibn Sina as well and his famous book, uh, Al-Qanun Fit-Tib, um, the, the canyon of, of medicine. And also in the 17th century, an English physician, William, William Harvey, he famously carried out what was considered as groundbreaking research regarding blood circulation and the functioning of the heart. However, it was later discovered that more than 400 years before Harvey's research, Ibn Nafis, an Arab physician, uh, had already detailed basic uh, pulmonary circulation in the Arabic textbook. Also in the 9th century, uh, Jabir bin Hayyan, he brought about a revolution in the fields of chemistry. He invented many of the basic processes and apparatus still in use today and the principles of algebra were first developed by a muslim as was much of the theory of uh, trigonometry 
and in the modern world algorithms are the basic of modern computing technology and they were two uh, first developed by muslims and the contribution of muslims to intellectual enlightenment is still recognized so in a nutshell we we know that uh, islam it gives a great emphasis on education and as a muslim how important it is to attain knowledge um and with that we'd like to close this uh, particular segment and uh, as we are approaching the hour um as we will be uh, closing to the show i wanted to take this opportunity to thank all our guests that did come to the show uh to John Carter for for coming on the show for our first segment and uh, enlightening us he is a retired teacher of uh, French and German humanist representative of the Merton uh, SACRE um i also wanted to thank Abdul Haq Kompier uh, who is a spokesman of the MD Muslim committee in the Netherlands so thank you so much for joining us also to Professor Terry uh Buki who is education program coordinator of the Mainsfield campus of the State Ohio State University that was for the second segment also to Zayan Khaled who is the local uh coordinator of for the Ahmadiyya Muslim Youth Association and also to Zufishan Naim who is the teacher at uh, a secondary school in Britain so thank you so much to our guests who who joined uh also wanted to thank the producer uh Basirat Siddiqui and her team of researchers Neha Latif and Aman uh thank you so much for a great production uh also wanted to thank uh our tech team uh, brother Shafiq in the background for his great work and we do hope that you've enjoyed the show today um and uh, remember you can uh, catch the main programs on the weekdays the Friday morning show every every morning from 7 a.m. to 9 a.m. and also the drive time show from 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. so do tune in to these uh, um shows as well um and also to our shows on the weekend such as the weekend world um and and many more for more information you can go on our website on www.voiceofislam.co.uk um so until next time it's uh, assalamu alaikum from us here in the studio uh, and inshallah we will see you again